listening to a good story, we generally don't like to know the ending. We don't want the story to be ruined for us. We don't want any spoilers. But knowing the end can change how we listen to the story. If we know certain characters take center stage, we might pay more attention to them early on. There might be some sad moments, but if we know how the story ends, we can endure through the sadness for the joy to follow. We think knowing the end ruins the story, but in reality, it gives hope and clarity. When it comes to the story of redemption, we get a glimpse of the end of that story. It doesn't always make our present experience easier, but it does give us hope when we understand that all sad things will become untrue. When we know that our world is broken, but that God is moving to restore and redeem. We get to know the end of the story. And spoiler alert, God wins. We're continuing our series on Revelation today, so I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 9. Uh, one quick note, I had someone comment to me this morning that they really enjoyed uh, watching back my sermon from last week because they're able to pause and rewind and hear what I had just said. So I, uh, I don't mention this all the time, but just wanted to make a quick note. If you uh, like struggle keeping up because there's a lot that I talk about and I talk quickly, I understand that, I'm working on it. I think you guys are growing in listening faster and I'm growing in talking slower. So at some point, maybe 20 years down the road, we'll meet in the middle. Um, but I, I want to share that if you do struggle following along, I publish my manuscript, which is what I preach from every week on my blog. So if you just go to pastormikesmusings.com, uh, you can just follow along. I usually try to like include links to books I'm putting in there or links to where I get quotes. Ross, I'm off script right now. I'm sorry. Um, Ross has, has it and is following along. One note, because this has happened to Ross, um, when you're following along in the Bible, be careful not to hit play. Because the Bible will start reading it to you, and then you, or click the link to like follow the the uh, YouTube because you'll be about like a minute delayed, so and it'll just be my voice playing back. You can hear it right here. Um, so we're going to be Revelation one, beginning in verse nine, and we're going to be looking at Jesus. But when you think about Jesus, when you when you hear just that word, what is it that comes to mind for you? Like some of us, I'm I'm guessing, imagine nativity Jesus, and and obviously uh, he lays there silently because no crying he makes. Or as a movie I watched back in high school stated, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. A little misconstrued on theology there, but I won't get into that. Do you picture him like a uh, picture my grandma had hung up in her house? The long, luscious, flowing locks Jesus. Or, or maybe similarly to me, you saw the Jesus movie from the 1979 crew film, and this was your picture of Jesus. Or if you've kept up with The Chosen, that's the image that comes to mind when you think of Jesus. Now, one of the things that, that no, none of my classes at seminary prepared me for was the question, Daddy, is that really Jesus? That's for my kids after we watched an episode of The Chosen together. And it's, yes, but no, but he's pretending to be Jesus? Oh, so he's lying. Well, not quite. Um, I, if anyone has any recommendations on how to tell your kids that is both Jesus but not Jesus, please let me know. Now, obviously, none of these pictures are a direct representation of Jesus. We don't have any paintings of him. Uh, cameras didn't exist at the time. And, and the biblical descriptions of the physical Jesus are, are pretty scarce. We know that he was a man. 
We know where he was born and lived and ministered, and someday in the future, we will actually see what he looks like. And today's text is going to be a picture of exactly what he looks like, but it's not what many or most of us would expect. So I hope by now you have Revelation 1. If you do, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. We'll begin in verse 9 and read through the end of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As you're seated, I invite you to once again join me in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your commitment to your word and the ways that you have revealed yourself to us in and through your written word and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we continue working our way through this text, that we would see the blessing that comes from following you, from having our frameworks shaped and shifted and sorted according to your good design. Now we pray that my words today would not just be my words, but they would be your words, that you would speak in and through us as your people gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this whole thing is centered on the risen Christ, but, but John is still the, the primary character in the story so far. So we begin looking at, at John's commission here. Notice he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the gospel. He is chosen by God, but look at the words that he uses to describe himself. Two words, brother and a partner. Now, the brother piece, I think, is significant. It's getting to the, the familial attachments of the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the fact that I got brothers in the church because I grew up having only sisters. In fact, as I was growing up, like, I still keep up with all my guy friends from high school because of the closeness we had and, and the faith that we shared, and that is supposed to be evident in the church as well. But the other thing we see John talk about here is, is the partner, a partner in three things here. He says, affliction, kingdom, and endurance. Now, notice that all of these come about by being in Christ Jesus. Now, the word translated as affliction is, uh, in other translations, translated as tribulation. We saw last week that, that John was exiled to Patmos because of his beliefs about Jesus. So the church in the first century at the time this letter was written was, was under uh, persecution. It was going in full force. So John is writing this letter to these churches to remind them that they're not alone. Now, I've got a friend uh, who this past week was just informed that he was let go from his job. 
Um, and after he called me and, and just walked me through exactly what had happened, I sent a text to him and his wife that we're praying for them and we are with them as they navigate this. Now, I've even heard like this idea of affliction. Uh, a summary of life can be stated, life is hard and then you die. <laughs> and and like, it's funny, but it's sad because there's an element of truth to that, right? Even Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering, that's the same word that is used in Revelation, suffering or tribulation in this world, but be courageous because I have conquered the world. Yes, life is hard. The question is, what do you do with the fact that life is hard? See, if you have a partner, if you have someone walking with you, it really gets a lot easier, which leads us to the second piece, kingdom. Kingdom is one of Jesus' favorite topics to discuss. Think of, of what you, we recite when, when we recite the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So remember, right here and right now, we are a part of God's kingdom. Even though it doesn't feel that way, even though it doesn't look that way as we observe what's taking place around us, this is part of the reason that we need a partner nearby us to remind us the truth. You are now a part of God's kingdom. And I just have been captured the past year by Francis Schaeffer's description, uh, what's truly true or true truth. Because there's a lot of competition for what truth is today, but we have and we believe in true truth. Then the last thing that, that John is a partner in is in endurance. Now, one of the repeated refrains throughout the New Testament is a call, is a command for us to endure, to remain faithful. Now, again, we're not called to do this alone or in isolation. Uh, my senior year of high school, I ran cross-country, and one of the best ways to grow in running, to become better at long distances, to become faster, is to have other people nearby you who are pushing you, who can literally come alongside you in the middle of the race to continue encouraging endurance until the very end. Now, one of the verses that, that I have just uh, meditated on and, and kind of tried to, to soak and saturate my life in over the past few years on this idea is Galatians 6, where Paul there reminds us, let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. See, what, what Paul is, is calling here is not getting tired. And this is even an encouragement for all of us to continue exhorting one another to continue doing good. In fact, this is the one area where, where we as Christians are actually commanded to be competitive. Paul commands us to outdo one another in showing honor. So how, how do we continue exhorting each other to not give up? Now John talks about where he is. So he's this brother and this partner in affliction and in tribulation and kingdom and endurance that all come about because of Jesus. And he's writing from a specific place, an island called Patmos. Now I've shared this map before, but I want to just bring it up if you forget where it is. So Patmos is this little island right there. Right on, uh, right not too far from the, from the coast of Ephesus, which is uh, the church letter that we'll be studying next week together. But John was writing to all these various churches as he's exiled to Patmos, which is most likely a, a penal colony. Now, John's persecution most likely came about because he refused to bow the knee to the emperor. Now, one of the themes that, that is, is prevalent throughout this book is the regular reminder to not give in to the civil religions of the world. You, you could summarize those as emperor worship, idol worship, and economic worship. Those three things are all rampant in the first century and also remain rampant today. Don't give in to their allure. We'll see some specific exhortations to that end once we get to Revelation chapter 12. John also goes on to talk about being in the Spirit. 
Now, that's a kind of a weird phrase. Like, I've read, uh, it, was, it was from like National Geographic, so don't consider this a reliable authority on biblical interpretation. But I read someone said that in the spirit there is referring to like him getting high on drugs and then having these visions and then writing them out for us. Like, that, that's not exactly what is taking place here. So when, when John talks about being in the Spirit, it's actually referred to four other, or four, a total of four times throughout the book of Revelation. So here, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 3, and chapter 21, verse 10. So each time Paul talks about being in the Spirit, it's a precursor to the next step of Revelation, of John's vision. Specifically, he's, what he's talking about here is that he is in the, the next in the long line of prophets, So there's a similar word that is used in in Jude. So Jude only has one chapter, so it's verses 20 and 21. There Jude says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, there it is, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So they're praying in the Holy Spirit, exact same phrase, exact same wording that John is using here in Revelation. But he also says that he is praying on the Lord's Day. Now, there's some debate and discussion around this, just as there's many things in the book of Revelation, and part of it is because that phrase, Lord's Day, this is the only time and the only place in the entire New Testament that that phrase is used. The closest thing we have to that is the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 20. Now, what this is referring to is the first century practice that that the church adopted, where they changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. So before Jesus was resurrected, every Saturday they would practice the Sabbath, which is the day off. They would gather together in synagogue or temple and and hear the word taught and exhorted over them. But then after Jesus was resurrected, which took place on Sunday, the first day, Acts tells us that the early church met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Now, part of the reason this is important is because this is an evidence that we can use to point to and believe in the reality of the resurrection. Like nowhere in the Bible does it show Jesus or his disciples disobeying the law. Now, it it many times talks about them disobeying the man-made laws, but never once did they disobey God's revealed law. So why would these law-abiding Jews change the day of their worship? Unless something dramatic had happened like Jesus rising from the dead. Now, on this Sunday that he was praying in the Spirit, he hears a loud voice behind him like a trumpet. Now, even using that term, John is referring back to a whole stream of biblical ideas. So, in Exodus chapter 19, here, um, when, when God's presence is coming down to meet with Moses and interact on behalf of the people, it says, On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud blast from a ram's horn or a trumpet, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. So in the Old Testament, the way you knew God's presence was coming was through the sound of a ram's horn or a trumpet. This is telling us that God is coming. Now, I think it is important for us to note that this isn't always the way God reveals himself throughout the Old Testament. So think of the story of of Elijah, where Elijah is getting frustrated and worked up that he is the only one who is faithfully following after God. So God takes him away, puts him in the cleft of a rock, and it says, at that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, God can speak in both ways. God can speak through a still small voice to Elijah or a trumpet so loud that your ears ring. Now, I think this is intentionally comparing or contrasting Jesus' two comings. 
His first coming wasn't silent, in, in isolation, in a backwater country. His second coming is going to be loud and proud, like the sound of a trumpet. And, and just like every other prophet throughout history is chosen by God, John here is given a specific job. Verse 11, he says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. God is here going to be revealing specific things to John. His job is to write them down. And, and remember, I, I talked about last week, there's a lot of uh, allusions or uh, conversations that, that John is having where he alludes to the prophecies in Daniel. Daniel's prophecy, though, is very different from John's, where John is commanded to share it and send it out with all these other churches. Daniel is commanded, here, you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. So again, John has all these similarities to Daniel, except in, in this way. John's job is to share and proclaim and get this news out to any and everyone who will listen. So then we come to a picture of, of what John actually sees. So if, if you were standing, if you were praying in the Spirit, and suddenly you heard a voice as loud as a trumpet standing behind you, don't you think you would turn around and look? It's exactly what John does. Verse 12, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. The first thing he notices, though, is not a person. Notice he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, once again, as through most of Revelation, if our minds aren't saturated with the words of Scripture, this isn't going to make any sense to us. So the first thing we need to do is look at the immediate context. Jump down to verse 20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we know that these are the seven churches that have already been talked about a couple times in this text. So since we know that this refers to the churches, this leads us to something else that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus describes the church this way. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give, give glory to your Father in heaven. So this tells us that the, the role, the job, the function of the churches is to shine your light before others, so that they can see the good works that God has called us to do and then give glory and follow Jesus. But there's also a couple other Old Testament passages that this is referring to. First one is Exodus chapter 25, where it talks about one of the ornaments that Moses and the Israelites are supposed to make for the tabernacle is a lampstand. So I just pulled a few of the verses that talk specifically about the lampstand out of Exodus 25. First is you are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece, its base and shaft, its ornamental cups and its bud and petals. Make its seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. The lampstand with all these utensils is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold. So in this case, in the Old Testament, the lampstand was created to light up the tabernacle. That was the place where God's very presence dwelt. Now, keep that in mind, but there's also another passage that John is, is borrowing from. In Zechariah 4, another pro prophetic passage says, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven sprouts for each of the lamps. The seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. Now, you don't need to know all the other details with Zerubbabel and stuff, but here what is demonstrated is the lampstands show God's oversight into everything that is taking place. So just like in the Old Testament, God's prophecy to Zechariah is accompanied by God's revelation of his plan. In Revelation, God is revealing to John his specific plan. So only after seeing this picture of these lampstands and with all this Old Testament background and illusion behind it, do we then get to the person 
who was talking. Look at verse 13. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, etc. We'll get to all that. Now, again, I mentioned this last week, but this idea of Son of Man is referring back to Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel, as he is watching the night visions, says, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days, etc. Now, in the New Testament, one of the things that we often miss as we're reading through this is uh, the way memory worked in the first century was a little bit different than memory today. So if you, if you follow along with a lot of the sociological studies, the attention span of people is dropping dramatically uh, just because of technological use. And it seems like each new uh, social media platform that comes along decreases the amount or time of videos that you can put on there, where YouTube used to be a max of like five minutes down to TikTok, which is a max of like 30 seconds. But in the first century, people were trained just to memorize things. So people in the first century actually, actually had a far better memory retention than any of us do. Like their culture literally trained, like education even, trained them to hear and then automatically memorize and remember things. So in the New Testament, when, when people would quote uh, from the Old Testament, they would often just quote the first line of the passage that they were referring to, and then everyone else understood the whole context, and it would bring to their minds exactly what the whole passage was saying. So when you get Jesus on the cross, he cries out a specific psalm, Psalm 22, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would have connected to Psalm 22 in people's minds. Jesus only needs to quote the first verse because everyone knew the whole rest of the passage, which ends with the psalmist having God's victory. So when John refers back to the Son of Man, all those who would have heard this would have thought about the whole passage from Daniel. Now, before we get to the uh, image itself, I got a complaint from Jedediah last week for not including any Lord of the Rings videos. So I thought this was a perfect time for another clip. Um, Gandalf the Grey, where's Brayden? Yep, spoiler alert, you got, this is completely giving away the ending of the first movie. So, again, you've had 20 years. Although, uh, good news, Brayden is reading The Hobbit. How many pages are you on now? He's halfway. Way to go, Brayden. You've got four, three more books to go. All right, so in the first book, The Fellowship, all nine of them go out on a quest. And Gandalf the Grey, the wizard who uh, started the whole adventure all the way back in, in uh, The Hobbit, was thought to have been killed at the ending of the first book. And the bad guy is, or one of the bad guys, is Saruman the White, who was leading all the evil forces against the Fellowship. Eventually, the Fellowship disbands, and Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli end up going to look for the two hobbits who had been captured, leading them to the point of this clip. Now, you could do a whole bunch of theological directions just with that little clip, um, but it, it communicates kind of the point of what John sees, where suddenly the, he's just overwhelmed by this bright image of the risen Jesus. Now, we're going to just walk through all these pieces uh, or components on him. So uh, if you grab your Bibles and look along, uh, I'm not going to necessarily come back to the, the verses on the screen just because there's so many different passages that are alluded to here. But it talks about, beginning of verse 13, Son of man dressed in a robe with a golden sash, hair of his head, uh, eyes, his feet, all the, and, and then landing on his voice. So the first thing to notice is the robe. Now, when you think of a robe in, in terms of just the whole biblical storyline, one of the stories that should come to mind is the story of Joseph, who was given a, a special robe from his father. Uh, and it's also significant in the Greek that it says this, this robe um, goes all the way, at, in, the, in this Greek itself, not in this translation, uh, but in the Greek it says that the robe goes all the way down to his feet. Now, one of the things that was signified in the first century with, with uh, Roman clothing was the higher up in authority you were, the lower your robe went. 
So like a basic level of authority, like your robe would go here. If you were higher up, it'd go past the knee. Higher up than that, it'd be halfway down your calf. And then only the emperor, the highest supreme authority, had a robe that went all the way down to his feet. But it also denotes a priestly role that Jesus played. So in Exodus 28, verse 4, it says, These are the garments that they, the priests, must make. Breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. Notice the sash piece, because that's exactly what is described next. It says Jesus also has a golden sash. This is another way of denoting a priestly garment, another reminder that this golden sash means he is royalty. He is in complete control and authority over everything that is taking place. Now, the next thing that is an interesting description, especially in our culture today, is his hair. Notice the color of Jesus' hair as described in, in Revelation. It says it is white as wool, white as snow. Now, anyone here proud to have white hair? I got into a com- conversation with a friend last week about what do you do with the gray hair that starts coming in? And despite all the commercials telling us to use just for men, and sometimes even kids commenting, Dad, you need some of that, the Bible has a different approach to gray hair. And I I first uh, had this verse pointed out to me from a friend in college who wrote it on his dad's birthday card. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a glorious crown. Crown, it is found in the way of righteousness. Now, I think this, this also connects back to another moment where Jesus' glorified image was seen by the disciples in the transfiguration. Now, the transfiguration is also an important um, idea or part of the biblical story to keep in mind here because that is a picture before Jesus died of the glorified Jesus, the Jesus as we will someday see him. So there in Mark 9, it says that his clothes became dazzling, dazzlingly, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. So one of the things, two things that are denoted by this, one is it connects back to the ancient of days piece, where it's, it's saying that he has lived forever. But the second piece is because it's, it's so white, it's referring to purity. So he's full of wisdom and he's full of purity. Then the next description is, is of his eyes. It says his eyes are like a fiery flame. Now as, as eyes, eyes age, they tend to become less bright, don't they? Like you start dealing with cataracts, you start dealing with little floaties behind the eyes, and then you call Dr. Keith to come help you fix your eyes. That doesn't happen with Jesus. Now this also comes up again in chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 19, verse 12, in those cases connected specifically to judgment. Now what this is signifying is Jesus' eyes can penetrate beneath the surface and get to the heart of the matter. Like if you've ever been in a conversation with someone who in the, in the course of the conversation suddenly asks the exact question you needed to hear, and it feels like they're just staring directly into your soul. That's exactly what Jesus' eyes can do, penetrate beneath the surface to get to the heart of the matter. He goes on from his eyes to talk about his feet, described as finds brawn, as it is fired in a furnace. So this connects actually back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, where there Daniel looks up and sees a man dressed in linen and with a belt of gold. You see the similarities here from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Does that sound familiar to something else we read this morning? Isn't it amazing the way the Bible just fits together? Now, in this case, the the fact that his his feet are described as polished bronze or pure bronze denote that, that he has complete strength and stability. Like the bronze cannot be broken, it, it, nothing can stand against it. He can crush or defeat all of his enemies because of the strength of his feet. But it also gets to uh, complete purity. 
Because if, if this has actually had all the impurities, if it's been put through a furnace, it's had all the impurities burned off of it. N- notice as well the description of the voice at the end, like the sound of a multitude. Now, going back to Revelation. End of verse 15, his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Think of it less like water and more of a hurricane. Now, there's a couple other places that, that this idea connects to as well. So Ezekiel chapter 1 says those who, who carry God's throne around when they moved I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the Almighty. Notice the torrent is connected to the voice piece. And the sound of tumult like the noise of an army. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. And then we also see this when God's glory finally comes back to Israel. Verse 43, chapter 43, verse 2 in Ezekiel says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. So all these ideas that we see throughout the Bible, John is picking up on to describe exactly what it is he's seeing when he sees the resurrected Jesus finally. And then, just to wrap all these things up, he adds three other descriptions of Jesus. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. The uh, seven stars piece in the uh, old commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, they summarize it this way. Like the seven lampstands, the number of seven stars may also have arisen in part from the seven lamps of Zechariah 4. We read that earlier. In later Judaism, the Zechariah 4-2 lampstand is said to symbolize the righteous in Israel and is equated with the wise who will shine like the stars in Daniel 12-3. I mean, it's just... Part of the reason I think Revelation is so helpful for us today is the way that it brings all of these imageries and ideas from the Bible together in one book. And it gives us a picture of what it is that's going to happen when Jesus finally comes back. This is just a glimpse of the greatness and the grandeur of who God is. Now, the seven stars piece, the fact that they're in his right hand signifies that Jesus is in complete control of them. That means nothing can happen to these seven stars apart from his guidance. We also see the sword that that comes from his mouth. So Jesus' second coming is going to bring pure division. Now, this is picking up on on a couple other passages again. So Isaiah 49.2, the prophecy from Isaiah says, He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. So God's word becomes a sharpened sword. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. I also think it connects again to something Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 10. He said, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. That's supposed to be a description of the church, the familial aspect that we have here in Christ's body. Now we see here, Jesus' arrival is not accompanied by peace, but a sword. Like we think it's peaceful. We think of, again, going back to my opening illustration, we think of sweet little Jesus lying in a manger. But he came to wage war, <laughs> war against the works of the flesh and, and, and the devil, to put him completely to death. And then the last thing that it says is, is that his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now, I think this again refers back to Jesus' transfiguration. Matthew 17 says, he was transfigured in front of them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Now, what the disciples saw there in Matthew was a little picture of the glorified Jesus. 
But this is also picking up another theme that we see in the Old Testament. So in Exodus chapter 34, Moses goes and meets with God, and he gets the Ten Commandments for a second time, and then as he's coming down the second time, he did not realize, it says here, that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Now, part of what is being done here is there's comparisons or connections being made between uh, who is described as the ultimate prophet in the Old Testament, Moses, to Jesus. So anytime Moses would meet with the Lord, he would end up with a glowing face, which kind of like us in Minnesota, when we see the sun for the first time in the summer and forget to put sunscreen on, our faces end up feeling like they glow, right? Like there's some summers where I felt like my face just glowed in the dark. So in order to not blind the people that Moses was supposed to minister to, he would put a veil over his face. And then he could engage with them in a way that they could actually see and talk to him. But what, get, what is amazing about this is the description Paul picks up on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So we all now, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. So just as, as Jesus' face in Revelation is said to shine like the sun, that's what our faces are supposed to do as well. Where we once had a veil covering us when we turned to Jesus, we are now commanded to shine brightly into the darkness of the world, just like the lampstands at the beginning of this section. Now, Revelation is just this beautiful summary, this cherry on top of all of the, the, the story of Scripture encapsulated in one book. All these little ideas and pictures that have been alluded to before are finding their fulfillment right now. So then John responds to this revelation from God. Since he sees Jesus, he responds like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah glimpses a picture of God and comes undone. He realizes that he is unworthy to stand before this perfect, righteous, holy God. So the first words out of Isaiah's mouth are, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And Isaiah is only able to stand before God because he is touched by an angel and all of his sins are atoned for. In this case, Jesus has already dealt with the sins, but he still reaches out and touches him. Notice, he laid his right hand on me. Now, I think one of the most underrated aspects of Jesus' ministry is that of touch. There's something comforting and strengthening about just being touched by someone else. A hug, an arm around the shoulder. Think of all the people that Jesus touched even when he didn't need to. He touched a leper who hadn't been touched in years because he was unclean, a woman who had been dealing with a bloody discharge for 12 years, which rendered her unclean and unable to be touched by anyone else, a blind man whose eyes hadn't worked since birth, all of them touched by the Savior. So as Jesus touches someone, it brings comfort and strength. Why why should we not fear? He says, don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. This connects back to the ancient of days idea. In uh, chapter 7, 9, verse 13, Jesus has always existed. He will always exist. And so because of that, we can trust his guiding in every circumstance of our lives. Now, Jesus is different than the ancient of days because he's the living one, the one who was dead, but now alive forever and ever. This is getting to the different roles of the Father and the Son in the Trinity. So through his death, What he did is is he defeated sin and death forever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, what are the keys? Keys in the New Testament signify authority. Another passage, keys are used by Jesus in Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus gave, or God, Jesus as God, gave keys to the church to manage church membership. Matthew 16, 17 to 20, and Matthew 18, 15 to 20. But Jesus 
is given the keys to manage death in Hades. Now, I love the way one commentator summarized this. He said, death kills the body and Hades kills the soul. Hades is the place where, where uh, the dead dwell. So then because of this, because God is, Jesus is in complete control, John has a commission. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place. So remember, John's vision is directly applicable to the first century, but it has blessing and connections for the churches throughout history, and then also gives us a picture of what will happen as Jesus returns. And then Jesus uses a weird word here, a mystery. Like, we love that word. We have a tendency to latch onto that word. I love reading mysteries. Um, I like the Hercule Perot movie series that has been coming out recently. But in the Bible, a mystery has a different connotation. A mystery is something that, that wasn't understood before, but is now finally revealed and has ultimate special redemptive purposes. So there's, again, as there's many debates, there's debate about what is talking place here. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. So a few different options for the angels of the seven churches. I said this last week as well. So the word for angel is messenger. Um, So it could be referring to the people that delivered this letter to all the various churches. Another option is it could refer to the pastors of those individual churches. Um, But part of the reason I, I don't think that is because every time the word angel is used in Revelation, it refers to spiritual beings. So that leaves us with two options for what this is referring to. One is the guardian angel of the churches or heavenly counterparts of the earthly reality. Now, those two seem like the most likely to me, and ultimately it doesn't matter which it is because they are subservient to Jesus. So remember that picture I showed last week. Keep the angels in the background and Jesus in the foreground. Now, what about the the churches as lampstands? Now, some of what is signified by this is... uh, I'm going to go back there... Um, it's significant that Jesus is standing among the lampstands. So what this tells us is that being a part of a church is the place where Jesus dwells. So if you want to be where Jesus is, become a member of a local church. Remember, I talked about this previously, Matthew 16 and 18. Talk about the keys to the kingdom are given to the church. And the church is the place where Jesus currently dwells. So remember, one of the themes through Revelation is by reading, interpreting, and keeping promises in here, we have blessing. So this week's blessing is the risen Christ is present wherever the church is. So if you are a part of a church, you get Jesus' comfort, you get his touch, and you get to participate in shining as a light into the world. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this glimpse, this picture of these heavenly realities, where even though it feels like and it seems like you are far off, you're wherever we are gathered together. We thank you for the reality of the church that will last into eternity. And we praise you that that nothing can stand against you, not even the gates of hell themselves. We ask you to continue working in us to see things from, from a heavenly perspective and not merely an earthly perspective. May we not grow weary of doing good. May we continue encouraging and exhorting one another as partners in this gospel message that we believe. We thank you that you have existed from eternity past and will exist into eternity future. And because of that, we can trust in you. We thank you that at the end of the day, every knee will bow in heaven and the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we pray that your spirit would be among us today, that we would continue shining as lights in the darkness, that we would allow others to see the good deeds that come through you that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. God, we pray that we would be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.